The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Welcome to For the Love of Wine on Fresh FM. I'm your host, Kirsten Rothschild. The show's been off the air for a while as I've enjoyed a well-deserved break overseas, which included promoting New Zealand wine in Denmark, my country of origin. But I'm now happily back home in Aotearoa and I have new guests lined up, ready to tell their stories here on Fresh FM. First up is Nicholas Brown from Black Estate in Waipara. A big warm welcome to you, Nicholas. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. So tell me, how's winter in uh, the areas north of Christchurch? Just going great. Yeah, we've um, had like the rest of the country uh, a mild patch uh, for a late autumn, but now that we're heading into winter, uh, as um, we approach the winter solstice, we're getting some chillier temperatures. That's for sure. So uh, today started off cool. And um, the rest of the week is looking pretty fresh. So, yeah, nice yeah, wintry sa- weather. Same up here in Nelson. It's sunny and gorgeous, but it is fresh with fresh snow on the mountains as well. So, let's first establish what Black Estate is. I mean, for one, it is quite the family affair, isn't it, Nicholas? Yeah, I'm just really a privilege to be able to work with my family and uh, develop the business as we go. And... Uh, we've been um, doing this since around about 2007, so um, time is ticking along. It's exciting. Yeah. So uh, who, uh, what family members are involved? Yes, yeah, so Black Estate is run by my wife and myself, and we lease uh, the property from uh, Ken's family, the Nash family. So, um, yeah, it's been a collaboration really with, uh, firstly, Penelope's father, Rod Nash, and Stacey Nash, um, Penelope's mother when we were looking for some land to buy uh, in North Canterbury because we thought it was in a region that held some potential and promise. So we purchased And you were the, right about that, I have to yeah, say. Sure, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, bit of a punt, but um, things have come along. Yeah. And so we started um, with a 16-hectare uh, property with eight hectares of vineyard in 2007 that we purchased from Russell Black. And then we have developed uh, vineyards since then with the... Um, Damsteep Vineyard, which we leased, uh, well, purchased in 2012, and then the Netherwood Vineyard, which we leased in 2012 and purchased in 2015. So we now look after 24 hectares of vines, which is around about 50 hectares um, of property in total. So, yeah. yeah, and they're all three in the sub-region of Omihi, and um, what are the characteristics of the terroir there? Yeah, well, North Canterbury, as you, as you may know because you've visited, uh, we've got some diverse and interesting soil types for wine there. And Omahi that you mentioned is uh, in the northeast of the uh, region where we have hillside vineyards on clay soils and sometimes limestone in certain pockets. Uh, this is sort of contrast the south of the valley, which has glasneven gravels, very free-draining, highly mineralized soils, where we have producers in the east of the valley like the bone line. In the middle of the valley you've got uh, people like Terrace Edge and at the east on the Glasnevin Gravels we've got Pegasus Bay that's been making wines for quite a few years. Uh-huh. 
And another sub-district, the third one that we kind of think of is Waikari, where we have uh, very pure limestone soils and we've got producers like Pyramid Valley and Bell Hill um, making uh, wines on limestone like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So for people who are interested in, you know, the influence of soil on wine, um, they could taste Chardonnay from, um, you know, the bone line gravels, um, limestone. They could play... um, Bell Hill Chardonnay, and they could compare it to the Black Estate Chardonnay, and you could try, um, you know, one variety from the same vintage of gravels, limestones, or clay, or you could look at, um, you know, Pinot Noir from one sub-district, say Omahi. You could compare the um, Muddy Water, Mountford, and Black Estate Pinot Noirs, and they'd all be vineyards that established um, in the early to mid 90s on clay soils, and see you know, how um, similarities or the um, soil is the same, vintage is the same, but the producer is different. So yeah. it can be a really interesting exercise for Yeah, it is very people. fascinating, you know, when you when you visit vineries, wineries, sorry, that have um, um, vineyards in various areas, even though they might be close to each other, mm. uh, the final products can differ so much. It's, it's totally. fascinating, all this microclimate and terroir business. Yeah. Now, talking about wine, your portfolio at Black Estate, to me, as you mentioned, you know, white pro is primarily about Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and Riesling. But mm-hmm. is that what you grow or do you also have other things? Yeah, we do. Um, we do have those three varieties and they were the initial varieties that we um, looked at. Um, we The Black Estate home block, as we call it now, the original block planted by Russell Black that had Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, the, one of the main reasons why we were drawn to that block was that uh, it had an existing vineyard on interesting soil types of nice clay soils there, but it also had a small um, vineyard in the belly of the slope, just like above the original vineyard, where we thought that would have the, a very, very high potential to plant a vineyard. So we did that in 2011 after researching some, you know, getting some plant material and preparing the site. And so we planted more Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because they were proven. But we also wanted to um, just sort of explore some other possibilities there. So we mm-hmm. planted Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc. Nice. And these were varieties that um, we thought would be well suited to the climate because we have a cool climate uh, in North Canterbury and the soil where we have these dense clays that give lovely texture and weight to wine. So we thought the climate and soil might be matched to those two varieties, which most importantly were varieties that we really loved to, you know, drink and to explore. So we planted those um, sort of as a trial back in 2011 and, um, you know, hoping to make, um, you know, dry whites and reds from them, but knowing that with Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc they had um, good potential or versatility to make sparkling wine as far as Chenin went and possibly a really light rosé as for Cabernet Franc. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that we have been able to get them ripe enough to make, um, you know, dry wine styles, which has been really encouraging. And it could be that in the future, if we were going to do any more planting, these could be two varieties that um, would work really well. Yeah, sounds interesting. So t- also, I know, because I bought one of those, um, you have one of the old-fashioned ways of making sparkling wine. The, what do you call it, Pet Nat, Nat Pet? I can never remember. Yeah, totally. Um, so um, Pet Nat is sort of shortened for Petulant Natural, 
as um, method ancestral, which is a little bit different to method traditional in that at harvest we will start the fermentation process in tank and then uh, before the wine's fermented to dryness, we'll actually bottle it during harvest. So this might be three or four weeks after the grapes have been picked and uh, we sort of try and get the wine into bottle when we've got around about 15 to 20 grams of residual sugar hoping that it will be completed in the bottle Mm -hmm. and then with those wines we uh, have them that now the bottled wine is sitting in our cellar um, sort of aging through winter with the rest of our wine made from the 2022 harvest and in spring we'll look to riddle and scourge um, one of them and then through the season, um, riddle and scourge as we see the wines uh, ready. So it's a little bit different to Metho Traditional where, as you know, you would um, make the base wine and you might um, mature that wine on leaves for 18 months mm-hmm. or, or longer and then you would um, start a re-fermentation process by putting it into the bottle with a dosage, you know, with some sugar and yeast to get the fermentation going mm-hmm. and then you start that process a- a- around again. For that you need um, some specialist equipment and it does involve a lot of control. So while we're kind of exploring uh, the possibilities of sparkling wine from our own vineyard, we the method, ancestral method, allows us to do that um, on site and a little bit easier. And it means that we've got something quite delicious to drink that's sparkling quite soon after harvest. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also it has a different closure to the classic uh, sparkling wine or champagne. It, it, it's like a, a beer bottle, isn't it? That's right. So with um, Metho Traditional, often the wine does have a crown cap initially, but then when it's disgorged and presented on the market, they would put a cork into it. Mm. Some wines obviously are aged with a cork, um, but with the um, yeah, with Petnat, it seems, yeah, it just seems fitting that the crown cap is left or, or, or put back on, and I think it's sort of a, a part of the look and feel of the wine. So, yeah, I mean, I love... Um, Popping a champagne cork for sure, yeah. But uh, the crown cap, um, yeah, seems to work nicely for yeah. for petnet. Yeah, and and with the petnet, they seem like a lighter style of a sparkling wine. It's not like a heavy champagne. Mm. Um, I, I find it's it's almost towards being a bit of a, a cider like thing. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do vary quite a lot, and even our own wines have varied and evolved since we started making them in 2017. But we do look for. I mean. They have this light brightness about them because they're quite useful. Yeah. Uh, but we have a range of them. I mean, our home pet nat is from Chenin Blanc, and this has lovely, quite luminous acidity that's typical of the variety. Our dam steep pet nat, which we made for the first time in 2021, is from Pinot Noir with some Riesling in it, mm-hmm. and that really has a fruitiness and a roundness, which is uh, quite celebratory, and it's the first one we released actually in spring. Mm-hmm. But our Netherwood Pet Nat, that is a co-fermentation of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, comes from our oldest vines. They were planted in 1986, and they have a real depth of flavor and power to them. So that's a wine where we would have it on leaves for longer, so it gains uh, some complexity from the leaves and um, gets a little bit more integration and it does have a bit more power and depth. Um, not like a champagne or, or some of the longer aged uh, metho traditionals, but sort of heading in that direction, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, nice. Now, changing the subject again a little, Nicholas, when it comes to wine, how did it all begin for you personally? How did you get into wine? 
Yeah, well, I um, grew up in Christchurch, but my family had a strong connection to Banks Peninsula, and my grandfather was a farmer there. So I really enjoyed going over and spending time with with him and my grandmother on their farm in the eastern bays of Banks Peninsula, and just enjoyed the outdoors um, and being in, you know, seeing the different seasons that you do see when you spend time outside mm-hmm. on the land. So I uh, did a botany degree. Um, or a science degree majoring in botany down in Otago. And during my school holidays, I got a job working with a friend of mine whose family had set up a vineyard in North Canterbury. And I'd never, it never occurred to me that viticulture was uh, something that could be, that occurred in North Canterbury or could be done to, to you know, a high level. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed uh, the way the vines were connected to the seasons very, very closely. It was outdoor work. And it was a product that you could take to the world and share directly with customers. Uh, you could really see where the final um, product went. So that sort of opened my eyes to, you know, wine as uh, um, an interesting product and viticulture as a really um, rewarding process. Now, had you so, not drunk wine much before that? Not so much, no. I was, um, I, I had come across it, but um, this really... Um, you know, drew my attention to it. And then when I was studying um, down in um, Dunedin, I went back after the um, summer holidays where I was working in the vineyard and ended up getting a a job in a wine shop there. And the person who ran the wine shop, um, she was very, very um, focused on running some really in-depth tastings. And I learned a lot about um, different regions of the world and saw how captivated people were about wine Mm -hmm. so um yeah began to pursue it and um i guess my you know the next job i had was when i left university moved to auckland with um um penelope my now wife Mm -hmm. and um got a job selling and marketing wine in auckland which is a really you know our biggest market we have in new zealand yeah and so learned about you know selling wine there and then met uh a few winemakers and noted their their real passion for what they were doing and ended up asking one of them if I could do vintage with them in in Marlborough. So that was Brent Maris Uh of Wither Hills. Yeah, back in the day. Back in the day, this was back in 2002. And Wither Hills was going through a massive expansion and, um, yeah, he gave me the opportunity to go down and do harvest with him and that that was run, the cellar was run by um, Ben Glover who has Uh Zephyr Zephyr Wines now. Yeah. So, yeah, um, they shared a lot of information, um, they shared their passion and um, I, after a few weeks working uh, in the cellar, I really saw um, that I liked liked the work um, and, yeah, decided to pursue it. So... Uh, that was a start. I ended up doing some vintages overseas, as many winemakers do. You know, it's, yeah. um, you only get the chance to do um, get the lesson once a year. Exactly, so if you yeah. if you travel, start traveling the Grolobe, you can explore different wine regions, get another lesson. Uh, yeah. so, Where did so you did go? That. Where did you? Go? Um, the first one I did was overseas, was yeah. uh, in Chianti Classico at a place called Isla Elena, mm-hmm. and that was really fascinating to see in Italy the strong connection that wine has with history and food and it's a very cultural product in fact um, I believe that winemaking there is uh, governed by the Minister of Culture rather than Agriculture mm-hmm. so um, it's a very important um, part of the life there which I which I really love to, to learn about 
Yeah, right. you probably had a similar experience to that of Jules Taylor, who uh, who really has uh, brought that um, experience from her Italian time back to New Zealand, and you oh, know, great. focusing on the culture and the family around mm-hmm. and all the stories more so than than you know uh, being a, just a strict business. You know, it's all about yeah, about sure. good times. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then I did a vintage in the Napa Valley, um, working. Uh, at a place called Opus One that is uh, co-owned by Robert Mondavi and um, the Rothschild family. So nice. that was really great to see the way the American um, industry uh, approached harvest. You know, they had a lot of technology and they had some really advanced um, sellers and then the collaboration with the Rothschild family meant that they had really high level of skill and um and detail there so that was really fascinating and even though you know that's Cabernet Sauvignon a variety that I don't grow or make it now um, just seeing you know different techniques of different um, approaches and different climates was was a really great um, insight so yeah so you're still yeah. in touch with them uh, yes I am actually I heard from um, their winemaker a few months ago and um, be great to go back and uh, see see what they're up to now actually yeah, so, have, yeah. They, have any of them been out to see what you are up to um so i did work for tony soda in oregon once and he's he has come out and i've, I've seen him since so um yeah those connections you make uh, are really strong and really important and, yeah, and you can I learn mean, so much from each other surely totally yeah. one of the things that really struck me about the wine industry was the sharing of knowledge and you know, there wasn't uh, a guarding of intellectual property. Mm. Um, if people saw that you were um, hardworking and, and keen, they were really um, happy to share a lot of knowledge um, about what they do in the seasons. And every season is so different that it's not like um, you have to apply um, different things every season. But uh, that sharing of knowledge and hospitality, that was one of the, yeah, really one of the things that made me really excited about the industry and, and pursuing a career in it. Yeah, exactly. and I think it's the same in New Zealand. Everybody helps each other. That's totally true, yes. Definitely yeah. um, within our region, we've got a very strong um, collaboration um, that we have. And then also um, by being part of the you know organic wine grower and then a biodynamic community, there's this collaboration uh, around New Zealand as well, which is um, fantastic. And, and really encouraging. So, Yeah, yes. because you weren't organic from the beginning, but so talk me through your journey. When did you decide to head that direction? Yeah, well, actually, as soon as we purchased Black Estate in 2007, the first thing we did was sort of move it more towards um, organic and biodynamic principles. We then took on the lease and um, then purchased two other vineyards. So we sort of had to... Um, reassess um, how we manage those vineyards but we decided that it was important that we got certification uh, I think we decided that around about 2015 we thought initially we wouldn't need to get a, get our vineyard certified but we realised that certification means that our customers can be really sure that what we say we're doing is what we're doing because mm-hmm. we're um, yeah. audited by an external body so we started that process and became um, fully certified, I believe it was in 2017, which was a really great um, 
moment for our whole vineyard team just to see that we'd um, gone through that process and finally got there. And now we're actually going through that process with Demeter certification and looking at getting, hopefully getting fully Demeter certified in the next 12 months. So that means you'd be uh, biodynamic as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah wow. which is okay. um, really exciting. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that's a big step to take. And I understand it's also quite costly uh, to get through all these uh, um, hoops uh, to become biodynamic. Yeah, that's right. There's, um, but the auditing process has become more and more streamlined um, as the years go by. But um, that's definitely something that all organic and biodynamic um, certified producers do need to go through an extra auditing step just to get that quality assurance for the benefit of the customer, really. Uh, so, yeah, it's something to think about. And once we'd been through that process with BioGrow for the organic certification, I, was, I had held a lot more respect for, you know, any other producer, whether it was someone making milk or coffee or um, whatever else was certified and it it really got the strong sense of a community and um, now when I go out and and looking to buy things I realize that really powerful way of endorsing those products is by putting my money where my mouth is and buying those products so yeah it's sort of strengthened that community which is pretty cool yeah exactly and I know that before you went organic and now biodynamic um, you were quoted saying that you had uh, in the past drunk a lot of uh, wine that was organic and you'd admired it and uh, you were thinking maybe it was something you could achieve with your wines and and here we are now so are you um, totally happy with uh, the conversion and what you've achieved now yeah, we're really uh, excited about it and um, proud to have gone through this process and just keep going through with each season. There definitely are challenges, but because we have a strong community that's willing to share ideas, that's really, really helpful. We. What would some of those challenges be? I guess the um, continued, um, just how every growing season has, is quite, um, there's a lot of variation there's no sort of constant season anymore. Perhaps there never was, but um, you just uh, every season seems to hold a new challenge. With um, organic and biodynamic, you've really got to be working closely with the season and um, preempt some problems that might occur, and that really revolves around primarily disease pressure. Um, there's a lot of work to do with managing vigour because you want to make sure that you've got... Um, you know, very, very healthy soil, healthy vines to withstand the challenge of the season. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, with conversion of our um, vineyards that were conventional um, with, from the previous owners, we saw that you had a lot of vigour and then after about two or three years, um, potentially that vigour could decline as the uh, undervine weeds take control. So mm-hmm. that importance to use the right machinery and um, control the undervine and make sure that you've got a skilled team that's um, on top of um, the work that we do through the season to um, make sure the vines stay healthy, keep the vigour up and are resilient about um, all the challenges of the growing season. So we wouldn't farm in any other way, um, but we do acknowledge that it does take it does take a lot of time and focus, and yeah. it's very very engaging uh, for the growers, and it's also really much more pleasant to think that we're not working with um, chemicals that can be harmful exactly. for our staff, yeah. Uh, yeah. that can be harmful for our environment, and it also changes our perspective of um, 
you know, if there isn't, perhaps if there's an insect pest there, you know, what's happening in your um, property or your farm as a whole, can you, is there another beneficial um, plant that you can use to um, help create a more balanced uh, habitat or ecosystem within your vineyards? Because it seems that when you have these, you know, an imbalance, then a population of something will get out of control to a point where it can be detrimental to your crop, um, your farm. So we're just looking more and more at that balance. And by seeing every year when we get more diversity in the soil and around our farm and that our properties become more resilient, then that's that's really motivating and um, we gain this insight. But we do have to work and keep an eye on, um, make sure we've got really balanced yields because uh, with vineyards, you know, uh, the way they generate an income is that day of harvest. Mm -hmm. So that day of harvest, which is once a year, uh, we need to make sure that we do get the uh, amount of fruit that we need to cover, you know, all of our um, the running of the vineyard and the costs. And so, yeah, just keeping that eye on that balance. Yeah. Um, and speaking of vintages, balance. how was this uh, last one, 2022, for you? Yeah, uh, really another unique one uh, that wow. um, many might have um, talked about. It's unlike anyone I've seen before because um, the east coast of New Zealand and particularly North Canterbury is known as being, you know, having quite dry uh, summers um, where traditionally farmers might have lambing quite early and then uh, move a lot of stock off the land for the dry summers, the parched um, brown hills but this year we had 80% humidity right through most of the growing season Was that good? Was that good? Uh, that just is it just creates a really different environment to what you're normally used to mm -hmm. and it requires a sort of a change in the management of how you do things so if you don't react to those things um, quickly. If you think, no, that every season's the same, then you run into problems. And mm -hmm. so for this year, the problem could have been uh, if we didn't open up the canopies and create really, um, try and reduce the amount of humidity uh, and well-ventilated, um, you know, grape canopies so the fruit gets really great exposure, then you would get a build-up of um, some fungis and, and moulds, namely powdery mildew, which could lead to some problems uh, during yeah. the growing season. Yeah. So it's just that um, constant changing and evolving and reacting. Keeps um, you on your toes, quickly. Nicholas. It certainly <laughs> does, yeah. Now, do you see that, that climate change has something to do with all of this, all these changes? Yeah, well, I mean, having the high humidity and higher rainfall, um, you know, is, is um, contrary to the idea that, um, you know, this, this thing's going to get drier and hotter. But what we're seeing is that just, just that change mm. and that really random nature of each season yeah. and um, yes again we had quite a dry long autumn so um, end of like mid-April and May were, were quite dry so that's a bit of a shift um, to what we normally see so yeah definitely climate change is real and uh, when I talk to my colleagues um, from around you know the globe mm -hmm. um, they are experiencing some really, just really random um, mm. highs and lows there. So it's another, um, you know, uh, we've realised how lucky we are to be able to uh, look after some land and um, how we can use these properties most effectively. So um, we're looking at other ways of um, 
you know, growing grapes, but also growing what other things can we grow on these properties. And yeah, so you never know, in 10 years you might be doing other varietals. Totally, and that's, yeah. I think Biodynamics is really good at that. It helps you look at the farm as a whole, and so um, part of that might be looking at other um, things that can happen on these properties. So, yeah. 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 Now, earlier this year, Nicholas, you were voted New Zealand Winemaker of the Year by the Ooh. Gourmet Traveller Wine Magazine's annual awards. Quite a prestigious thing. So, big congratulations. But what, Thank you. what does an award like this mean to you? Oh, that was really, uh, really amazing uh, to get that recognition. And it's really something that. Uh, I think as a team, hopefully we can celebrate because really the work is uh, uh, less... The way we make the wine is less really about one person. It's about um, the place, um, the quality and the potential of the sites and then the team that um, come together and, and make it. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's work that we do right through the year and uh, we're making wines in a way that we really want to express the quality of the sites as clearly as possible. Mm -hmm. So that means that we've got um, you know, less new oak in the wines. We don't filter the wines. And um, we might have you know, a range of different styles that are a little bit different. So to go down that path um, with the goal of showing the character of these sites as clearly as possible and then to see that people uh, recognise them as high-quality wines mm -hmm. um, that people enjoy, that's that's been a really great um, recognition to see that perhaps people you know, share the enthusiasm for these sites and the wines as much as we do as a team and uh, the reason why we work so hard. So, yeah, really... Um, really motivating for all of us to mm -hmm. see that and um, really encouraging and, and helps us or um, encourages us to really just push uh, more and try and lift the quality even more because there's uh, a lot of potential with every season that we have to try and make something special. So, wow. yeah. yeah. Now, of course, at Black Estate, it's not all about wine. You also run a fabulous restaurant, which your wife, Penelope, um, is in charge of. So um, tell me about that place. Yeah, well, we built this um, building uh, as a tasting room, and it was designed by Penn's cousin, Richard Nash, a very talented architect from RTA Studios in Auckland. Mm -hmm. And we thought we'd put on some sort of cheese and, um, you know, some charcuterie or just some some subtle things for people to have while they were tasting the wines. But we quickly discovered, with the help of some other local um people who are really passionate about food, uh, the quality uh, of the produce in the region. Mm -hmm. So we sort of expanded the offerings and we found that people were really interested in coming up and um, spending time. They were not, they were happy to linger in the, in the building that we built and look out over the vineyard, try more and more food. So with that, all of a sudden, we sort of just evolved the venue, menu more and more and it's turned into a you know, fully-blown restaurant. Yeah. So, but you're only open for lunch five days a week. You don't have dinners. No, no. Um, being just an hour north of Christchurch, you know, it's a wonderful place for people to um, take a drive um, from the city, get out of the city, um, maybe explore um, what's happening you know, north. Um, and so the lunch menu works really well and means that in the evening we can return home and Spend time with our family. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you just mentioned it with the, the local uh, producers of food. You know, there's always something to celebrate in that area. In fact, 
um, on your website you have a list of your food suppliers they're all mostly of course boutique kiwi producers and and a lot of them local so that's a great other thing you know to to uh, promote with your organic and biodynamic wines all these amazing uh, foods yeah we're really excited about the people we work with and the, the products that they um, produce so we just want to share that um, with people so they can um, get access or, or even be encouraged to look in um, where they you know have locally like um, Nelson I'm sure there's lots of wonderful food producers up mm-hmm. there so you know just going out and looking for what they're doing and seeing the quality of, of what they do and, and doing it in a really sustainable way like our vegetable uh, supplier uh, one of the vegetable suppliers um, you know a really amazing biodynamic farm up in North Canterbury um, our fish is um, spare caught and done in a really sustainable way and just got some a lot of interesting products that we just want to share with people so yeah, so your customers they support some very good projects around the country by, yes. by supporting you yeah um lastly i just want to talk about black estate also offering a bit of accommodation that's another revenue for you income revenue so um what's that about well the building that richard helped us build uh has got this beautiful little studio down below and we just wanted to share it with uh people um, after they made inquiries because in North Canterbury there wasn't uh, a huge amount of accommodation so we just wanted to uh, give people the chance to rather than pass through the valley uh, stay overnight so we do have a small um, studio room where people can um, sort of be be, uh, surrounded by the vines and spend a night um, at Black Estate you know they may wish to um, have an afternoon in the restaurant and then stay on site and see you know, in the evening, especially in summer, you know, you get this really soft light and these beautiful sunsets and the evening can be so special. So, mm. um, Especially if you're sitting there linger. with a glass of your wine. It can be. It yeah. can be good, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Now, lastly, speaking of accommodation, do you guys actually live on the estate as well or somewhere else? So uh, when our restaurant expanded, uh, we needed some more sort of office space. We effectively got kicked out and we moved to our Netherwood Vineyard where we... Um, make the wine. Our winery is located there. So good for me. I was able to move closer to, um, you know, one of the hubs there. And um, Penn and I, with our children, Sylvia and Arthur, live uh, just six kilometres up at, at our Netherwood vineyard there. So, yes, we, we don't live at the home vineyard. It is still the home, as in the origin of mm-hmm. Black Estate, uh, planted by Russell Black, as I mentioned, in 94. But we now live, um, yeah, just up the road at Netherwood. Sounds like a wonderful life you've got there, Nicholas, with your family. On that note, our time is sadly up. Nicholas Brown from Black Estate and White Perth, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and sharing your stories with me and our listeners here on Fresh FM. Really nice to chat. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.